millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. First, Liverpool. Here's what we know, and then I'll tell you what I think. We know that at 10.59 a.m., just prior to the minute silence observed throughout the land on Remembrance Sunday, a car exploded outside the door of the women's hospital in the great city of Liverpool. We know that one person is dead. We know that that person is the passenger who was sat in the back seat. We know that the taxi driver has survived because he was able to tumble out of his door before the car was engulfed in flames. We know that the counter-terrorism squad is leading the investigation. Here's what I think. I think that the passenger was a woman. I think the passenger fully intended going into the hospital. Somehow, the explosion happened before the passenger, whom I believe to be a woman, was able to go in there. I've been criticized on social media by journalists for not waiting for the police official statement. I bet those journalists don't get many scoops. I've got my own sources of information in Liverpool, and I believe that there's every reason to suspect this was a terrorist attack aimed at Britain on possibly the most sacred day at the most sacred hour in our national life. When even the cynical, even those who oppose all wars, pause to remember those that fell. I do. Most of you in Britain almost certainly do also. We lament the fallen in the Second World War who died defending liberty, repelling fascism, saving the world from a fate almost unimaginable in which every Jew in the world would have been annihilated, every gypsy, every gay person, every disabled person, every communist, every socialist, every Jehovah's Witness, anyone who would not succumb to the iron heel of Hitler fascism, Mussolini fascism, Tojo fascism, would have been eliminated. And if our heroes, and above all the Russian heroes, and the other heroes from the other Soviet republics in the Red Army 
which inflicted 79% of all casualties suffered by the Wehrmacht in the Second World War. The heroes that came from the United States of America in 1944 and landed on Omaha Beach in Normandy as the liberation of Western Europe began. If those heroes had not done so, I'd be speaking to you tonight in German and my name would probably be Fritz or Erhardt. But of course, I wouldn't be speaking to you at all because under fascism, no such program as this open university of the airwaves could possibly have been tolerated. I'd be speaking to you if I was at all even alive to a script dictated by fascist Gauleiters who'd be sitting behind the glass now ready to shoot me if I departed from the script. That's how big the stakes were. And anyone who does not respect those that gave their lives fighting fascism in the Second World War, in my opinion, deserves unalloyed contempt. We remember also those that fell in wars into which they were fooled, into which they were tricked by their rulers. Wars which were unnecessary, wars which were ignoble. But that's hardly the fault of Tommy Atkins, who was conscripted and sent to fight in them. And so this day and that hour of 11 a.m. is sacred indeed. And if my speculation is right, that some terrorist sought to desecrate it with mass murder, then the plot thickens. We have. Let me tell you, there's breaking news. We're now hearing that three men have been arrested under the Terrorism Act after one person was killed in a car explosion outside the Liverpool Women's Hospital. So hey, Mr. Journalist, my sources were better than yours. I was right, and once again, you were wrong. The point though is, isn't it? that Britain is embroiled in a war against Islamist, fanatic, extremist terrorism. ISIS and Al-Qaeda and the alphabet soup of similar organizations are active and intend to harm as many of us. Even women in the women's hospital, a maternity hospital, are ready to harm, maim, murder any of us that they can to serve their evil purpose. Now, I use that as a segue into the next painful part of my monologue. I've been assailed by Trotskyites and liberals and anarchists and no doubt supporters of the most blue-blooded free market capitalism all of whom have one thing at least in common, they don't believe in borders. They believe that the solution to the problem of Afghanistan 
is for Afghanistan to move here. The problem of Kurdistan to be solved by Kurdistan moving here. We have an existential threat in the landing of thousands of people every single week about whom none of us know anything at all except this. The vast majority of them are men. The vast majority of those men are young men of fighting age. And they are arriving in rubber dinghies facilitated by the government of France, by the security forces of France, who turn a Nelson's eye, if they'll forgive me, to the fact that thousands of people are illegally leaving their country every week and landing equally illegally on our territory. Now the Liberals and the Trotskyites want to hang up banners saying refugees welcome. Well, not me, because whilst every country and ours more than almost any other have a legal and moral responsibility to accept the refugees who are fleeing from genuine war and destruction caused by us. That's not a blank check for anyone and everyone to arrive and then disperse into the local population here because we are at war with terrorism right now in plain sight. Mass murder was just narrowly averted, presumably by a premature explosion in Liverpool today. Umpteen acts of mass murder have been planned and some executed in Britain over these last years. Of course, nobody needs to tell me what Britain did to help fuel this extremism, this fanaticism. I'm the last person you need to lecture about that for reasons which anyone who knows me already knows. But it's my duty now as a political figure in Britain to defend our island and our people from nihilistic terrorist acts which seek to punish innocent people for the crimes of guilty people. A crime in any jurisdiction, a sin in any religion. But the political class appear to think that by pulling the duvet over their heads and not talking about this, that somehow the problem will go away. Worse than that, Britain has sent armed forces to Poland to repel a group of refugees on the Belarusian border, smaller in number than the number that landed in one day in Britain from France last week. Imagine, we're defending the EU's border in Poland, but can't defend our own border in the United Kingdom 
from illegal people trafficking, from the EU, from France. You couldn't make it up. But Boris Johnson has nothing to say about it. The Home Secretary, Priti Patel, sometimes says something about it, but never does anything about it. They blame the French. Just as well, Mr. Churchill didn't do that in 1940. He could have blamed the French and all the other European armies that folded like cheap deck chairs in a matter of hours in the teeth of the Wehrmacht's advance. But he had no time to blame France. It was his job to defend Britain. But nobody is defending Britain now. And if anything, the posture of the Trotskyites and liberals and free market capitalists in the so-called Labour Party is even worse on the matter than that of Her Majesty's government. Which allows me to segue to General Sir Nick Carter. Assailed as we are by Islamist fanatic terrorism, he chose Remembrance Sunday to pronounce that Britain must get ready for war with Russia. Russia, almost as if he didn't know that any war with Russia would leave the entire island of Great Britain a smoking, radioactive pile of ash and every person living in it would be dead. That's what General Sir Nick Carter says that we have to get ready for. Now, maybe he doesn't mean it, but the Russians have no reason to trust that. After all, it's exactly a hundred years ago since we last invaded Russia. Hundreds of thousands of our soldiers invaded Russia. A hundred years ago only. There are people alive today in Russia that were alive when we last invaded them. So now we have the Russian people being told on this day of all days that we've got to get ready for war with our former ally without whom we'd all be speaking in German. It is simply intolerable that these masters of war, these dogs of war, can ceaselessly bark and threaten countries like Russia, like China, who are exponentially more powerful than them. Maybe they're threatening Russia with America's army, just like Mussolini used to threaten people with Hitler's army. This is intolerable. If we tolerate it, we may very well find that we are on a slippery slope to war, the last war 
the war to end all wars because there'll be nobody left alive to fight the next one. The aforementioned Boris Johnson has now slipped behind Keir Starmer in the public opinion polls. You wouldn't believe that that was possible. It's like somebody telling you that Laurel and Hardy have streaked ahead of you in a foot race. It is almost impossible to believe that this block of wood, so wooden the birds are nesting in him, is now, in one case, six points ahead of a Tory government with an 80-seat majority. Whilst Boris Johnson, unlike David Cameron, who only hugged a husky, has actually zipped himself in to a polar bear suit. Gone green, gone gaga, threatening us all with environmental perdition unless we pony up thousands of pounds, scrap our boilers, scrap our cars, go cold, shower cold, eat cold dinners. He's lost control of the borders. He doesn't want you to notice. So he wants to terrify you with environmental perdition instead. All the talk at Westminster is that Boris Johnson is not much longer for this political world. We have a poll running now about who will be the next conservative leader. And finally, in the moment or so left to me, Her Majesty the Queen was missing today on Remembrance Sunday, which she has religiously attended throughout her long reign. There is speculation that this 94-year-old lady is more seriously ill than the media are telling us, than the political class are telling us. I put my cards on the table. I wish her even longer life than she has enjoyed. I wish her no harm at all. I respect the efforts that she has made as the longest serving British head of state. It would be unbecoming not to an old lady who recently lost her husband. But I will not myself accept Prince Charles as the head of state of this country upon her demise, which I say, I hope is long in the future. I think that Prince Charles would be a disaster for British democracy and for British public life in general, for reasons I'm more than happy to adumbrate. In my view, if the monarchy had any sense Charles would abdicate the moment that he became king and pass it on to his elder son, Prince William. But I am determined upon 
the passing of Her Majesty the Queen to campaign for a grown-up republic in Britain. Because I believe it is demeaning to a country like ours in the almost end of the first quarter of the 21st century to be ruled by the rules of primogeniture, where you have no say and where, if you're unlucky, you might get a gibbering idiot as your head of state. Now, one of many things that I have in common with my next guest is a fascination, an endless one in my case, for the Cambridge Spiring. The most famous, of course, being uh, Kim Philby, uh, the one-time, almost, head of the British Security Services, who had, in fact, been a Soviet agent since the early 1930s. Guy Burgess, his colourful, to say the least, uh, sidekick, and, of course, Donald Maclean, who was tipped to become the United Kingdom's ambassador in Washington. But in 1979, a fourth man was outed by Mrs. Thatcher. And by coincidence, I was in the House of Commons that day in 1979, when Mrs. Thatcher told the country what the state had known for very much longer. That Anthony Blunt, the keeper of the Queen's pictures, working at the Courtauld's Institute and in Buckingham Palace, had been, since the early 1930s, an agent of the Soviet intelligence service, the NKVD, later the KGB. The fifth man we might talk about. In fact, there's probably a sixth, there might be a seventh, and I have a sneaking suspicion there's at least an eighth. Now, Andrew Loney, who spoke so peerlessly uh, when he was last on the show, about Lord Mountbatten. My interview with him proved one of the most successful clips we've ever had. Is the author of Stalin's Englishman, the story of the aforementioned Guy Burgess. So on this anniversary, I could think of nobody better to speak to, and I'm glad to say Andrew agreed. Andrew, thank you very much indeed for uh, joining us. If you wouldn't mind starting with Blunt, as it's his anniversary, uh, why did the state wait so long to out him? Why didn't they out him when they found him? Or alternatively, why out him at all? Well, it's very good to be back with you. Um, the line from Harold Macmillan was, when my gamekeeper finds a fox, dead fox, he doesn't bring it into the house, he buries it in the garden. Uh, and that was the approach that they took to all the Cambridge spies. The fact is that none of the five actually, in a sense, paid for their crimes. They were either given immunity or allowed to escape. Uh, the only one who, who was actually sent to prison was George Blake, and that was because he didn't go to the right school. 
So um, this is their default position. Uh, far more, far better to sort of sweep the thing under the carpet. It was highly embarrassing to, to in terms of their relations with the Americans, uh, and uh, frankly, a public re- relations disaster. They'd have really let uh, Klaus Fuchs, um, uh, in a sense, get away. Um, uh, or, or when they, so there are a whole series of. of uh, things going on, and and the British, frankly, didn't want this thing to become a public scandal. Uh, it was fine for the Russians and the British Secret Service to know about it, but they didn't want the British public to know about it. Why then did Mrs. Thatcher make the statement she did all those years ago, but all those years later, after because they had she outed him? wasn't an establishment figure. I think she was appalled when she discovered that he had been given immunity in 1963. Uh, But also her hand was forced. The fact is that various people had begun to talk to uh, a man who was writing a book called The Climate of Treason. Uh, There was stuff appearing in Private Eye. Blunt, though he hadn't been named, uh, had been, uh, in fact, knew that he'd been rumbled and was beginning to take legal action or threatening legal action. So the story basically was out. She had no choice um, but to do something. But I think she was appalled when she discovered what had been going on, because for her, these were traitors. And the situation goes on, as you say. Uh, I I don't think there's an eighth man. I think there are about 20, 30 men. Uh, And I continue to make my my, uh, attempts to uncover this uh, and, again, have problems with the government trying to shut it down. There's a vetting file for a man who I believe was part of the ring, who continued to work until the 1970s, which they're refusing uh, to release. So this is a problem that's gone on for a long time. It continues to go on. There was a cover-up in 1951 when Burgess and McLean fled to the Soviet Union, uh, and and nothing has changed in the intervening 70 years. Now, Blunt was uh, a very important figure in the early days of the Cambridge Ring. Uh, He had a certain seniority and gravitas, and his particular favourite was the man that you wrote so magnificently about, Guy Burgess. Uh, Tell us about that relationship, if you will. Well, the first to be recruited was Kim Philby, who was sent back to basically recruit his chums from Cambridge. The the, the Russians had decided that um, they would have this sort of deep penetration mall approach where they would pick bright young undergraduates from the best universities. They would go into deep cover into the civil service or the foreign office or um, MI5 and MI6 uh, and journalism. Uh, And then they would be activated many years later. And Philby did that. He went back and he produced a list of five with Donald McLean at the top uh, and Guy Burgess at the bottom. Now, we don't know who the other names were, so numbers two, three, and four may have been may have refused or they may have been recruited and we don't know about them. Uh, and they were slightly nervous about Burgess, but McLean accepted immediately. This was in 1935. Burgess was very indiscreet, and that's not normally a characteristic of spies. But he sort of got to hear about it and he thought it was rather exciting and they had to basically let him in. And one of the pluses for him was that he was gay at a time when, of course, it was illegal. He had to lead lead his life covertly. And that, of course, is a perfect cover for a spy. Uh, And uh, so Burgess was recruited. I think many others were recruited because the Russians numbered their recruits and there are huge gaps uh, between the ones that we know were recruited when they were recruited and other figures. I think there were people like Leo Long, Michael Strait and Leo uh, and Alistair Watson, who were also recruited at this time. Now, Blunt was recruited because he was the lover of Burgess. McLean had also been the lover of, of Burgess. So there was a sort of psycho, there was a sexual element to this as well. 
Uh, and Blunt, of course, as you say, became very important because he had close links to the royal family. Uh, he was much older than them. Um, and he was able to get into MI5 at the beginning of the war. Burgess had got Philby into MI6, where he, in fact, had been working since the mid-30s. So he is a much more important figure than we realised, because he got these people into the intelligence services, and he was the first to be working for the intelligence services himself. Uh, it says something about how poor the records were, that Blunt, uh, on one day, received a letter saying, you're a communist and we don't want you, by MI5, and also on the same day saying, you speak German and we'd love to have you. Uh, so he ignored one letter and just um, uh, acted on the other. Yeah. Well, uh, he was an educated man. He did the uh, obvious thing in those circumstances. Um, talking of educated men, what was it that motivated these highly educated, some cases quite brilliant men? Blunt was a very brilliant man in his field. Uh, even Burgess had moments of brilliance. Uh, what was it that uh, drew them together and made them adhere uh, to the Soviet uh, cause in the mid-1930s? Well, you're right. They were all brilliant. They all had first-class degrees. They were all clearly going to the top, which is why they were approached. Uh, they all knew each other, which is why we talk about the Cambridge spy ring. They were all direct contemporaries at Cambridge within a few colleges. And they were recruited for a mixture of reasons or joined uh, the Soviet Union. They were looking They were looking for some sort of purpose in their life. So there was a very strong personal element in it to it. There was a certain sense of épater uh, le bourgeoisie, getting back at the establishment. They'd failed, the old generation failed them. They'd seen the problems, uh, economic problems, and the need for the national government in, in the early 1930s. They felt politically that the only people standing up to the fascists were the communists, and they were a bulwark against them. Uh, and they were recruited in a very sophisticated way by the Russians, who used Central Europeans, who were multilingual, uh, who often were um, highly educated, uh, and they seemed very attractive father figures. And I think many of the Cambridge spies had lost their fathers. Burgess at the age of 13, Maclean uh, again, uh, I think, at university, uh, Blunt. Philby's father had been absent, uh, and Blunt's father died again when he was quite young. So. These, these people, in a sense, became figures of authority and direction to these uh, slightly aimless uh, people who felt, like Burgess, that perhaps his talents hadn't been recognised and that they could make some sort of impact on the world. Burgess, when he left Cambridge, though he had this first-class degree, basically failed at a whole series of jobs. Uh, failed to get into the Times, he failed to um, uh, stay on at Cambridge uh, and do a doctorate and, and become a don. And so the Russians gave them... Uh, in some ways, um, uh, an identity which they, they felt they lacked. The uh, three that ran away to Moscow uh, lived uh, uh, quite quixotic uh, lives. Philby uh, later ending up with Maclean's wife. Uh, Burgess, I recall vividly, an interview with Canadian television, which had laid buried for decades, describing himself in cut glass English uh, as a, a non-party Bolshevik. Uh, he remained loyal, uh, it seems, to the ideology that he had joined. And uh, Philby, of course, uh, who lived the longest of the three, um, when asked by Philip Knightley, uh, one of his biographers, uh, uh, if, uh, if he had, uh, uh, did he have any regrets at losing his faith 
he insisted that he had kept his faith, meaning his faith in the Soviet Union and in the ideology uh, that prevailed there. Um, that would not seem to suggest aimlessness, Andrew. Uh, it would seem to suggest fairly solid commitment. Well, I mean, uh, Philby, for example, was so unhappy in the Soviet Union, he tried to commit suicide, and they all turned to drink. There was nothing much else in the Soviet Union. So what they said in public didn't necessarily reflect what they felt in private. But you're right, there is a certain something to admire. They, they, they picked their team early on, and they stuck with it. Uh, and um, they never actually went back on that. They were Burgess though he had abandoned, I mean, his mother, his friends, the things that really counted, like the reform club, at a very early age. I mean, he was 50 when he, he went to Russia. Um, he never had any regrets, though you get a very poignant picture in Alan Bennett's play, An Englishman Abroad, of, of him there. Um, McLean, I think, was the one who settled in most. His family were with him, and even though there was the betrayal of his wife leaving him for Philby, he, uh, in some ways, had been the most politicised of them. Uh, and he, though he didn't believe in Stalinism, and of course they didn't come to Moscow until Stalin was dead, uh, he actually believed in perestroika. He sort of adapted, and they all did. They were chameleons. They've adapted all their life, and they justified it for themselves because, of course, if they had admitted to themselves that they got it wrong, they would have realised their lives were a complete waste. Which begs the question, then, uh, did Blunt feel the same way whilst he was uh, discussing with Her Majesty the Queen uh, her pictures. Well, there's that wonderful uh, partner play, The Question of Attribution by Alan Bennett, in which he and the Queen are having a uh, conversation about truth and, and the pictures. And we all know that, that, that in fact, they know too that um, he's a spy. Uh, the Queen, I, I, I'm sure, was briefed very early on um, that he was a spy. I mean, he was suspected even from 1951. So even when he basically confessed in 1963, that was the, the end of a period of long suspicion. I think the feeling was that if he hadn't been given the job in the, in the palace, it would have sent out a signal to the Russians that he had been blown. And I think one of the things the British felt is that they could sometimes play material back to the Russians if they didn't know that their agents had been caught. Um, but yes, of course, the, 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 there is this extraordinary irony about uh, Blunt staying within the establishment. They were all complete hypocrites in terms of the way they operated. Uh, and um, he, in some ways, was the one who managed to get out. He refused to flee in 1951, though he helped arrange the, the escape of McLean and Burgess. Uh, he uh, was able to go back to his career as an academic, uh, and uh, though he helped them in some ways, uh, his role as, uh, was, was most important during the war when he worked in MI5. You made a, a remarkable allusion earlier uh, to George Blake, who only died very recently, uh, I think at the age of more or less 100, uh, in Moscow. Uh, you made the point that he went to jail because he'd gone to the wrong school. Um, and uh, the corollary of that is that the others had all gone to the right schools and the right universities. That tells you something about the upper reaches of the British state, at least at that time, maybe it's different now, uh, where uh, one of us, uh, people like us, uh, was the prevailing uh, zeitgeist. So uh, someone who went to the right school was a member of the right club, would get into the upper reaches of the establishment without too much 
checking on who and what they really were. Well, I think that's why the, the Cambridge Spy Ring fascinates us. It's about all sorts of things, sexual politics and class among them. Uh, and I think the Russians recognised very astutely that uh, these people would never be suspected because of their backgrounds. Uh, and that was the great shock to discover that you could go to Eton and be a spy. When there was the first suspicion of Burgess and McLean, uh, they didn't look at the diplomats, who were the people who were the, the, seeing the documents that were being uh, revealed. They looked at the cleaners and the clerks, thinking it must be them. Uh, and there's still, I would say, that mindset that jolly good chaps don't behave like that uh, uh, and it, the, the problems must lie elsewhere. So um, I think, sadly, you know, the lessons still haven't been learned. Well, finally, and I'm grateful for your time uh, always, uh, let me be devil's advocate for a minute. Uh, what exactly did they do wrong? They uh, tried to bolster uh, the fight against fascism. Uh, we became uh, not just partners with the Soviet Union in the Second World War, but if not for the Soviet Union, the war would almost certainly have been lost and we wouldn't be having this conversation now. Uh, their case would be that whatever they gave to the Soviet Union, the state, the government should have given of its own volition. Well, I mean, Burgess was recruited in the mid-1930s and worked the 1951 intelligence. Uh, Philby was recruited uh, uh, during the beginning of the war and worked, frankly, until 1963 when he fled. So it's a long period when we were not allies with the Soviet Union, not least when they were the allies of the, of the, of the Nazi Germany. So, I mean, they, they made a lot of, uh, sort of on the header several times, a lot of somersaults to justify their position. The fact is that these were people at the top of the intelligence organisations, the Foreign Office, everything that crossed their desk was sent to the Russians. Uh, the Russians actually knew our negotiating position, for example, in the four-part conference before the nego British negotiators knew. Uh, it wasn't just um, the intelligence information, which, of course, led to agents being killed. Uh, it was uh, the way, uh, all the information about particular people, politicians, that could be used for blackmail. Uh, Burgess was, the, in a sense, the special advisor to the foreign office minister dealing with the intelligence services, at a crucial point at the end of the war, when all the institutions... Well, he was sleeping set. with them and working in Parliament. Exactly. Uh, he had, and also, of course, he had this terrific role as an agent of influence because he got people onto the radio uh, as a radio producer who could then, of course, uh, spread, spread the word. So he worked on a whole series of levels. It's not just about the secrets he betrayed. It's about the influence he was able to exert in the media uh, and about, to say, these elements of blackmail. When, when he fled, they found all these love letters in a, in a guitar case. Uh, and MI5 thought that was rather charming until they realized that these were letters that were used for blackmail purposes. And uh, there is some suspicion that one of the senior conservative ministers, who was later chancellor, uh, turned a blind eye to what was happening in terms of currency infringements uh, because Burgess had something on this uh, former chancellor. And I said it finally, but uh, this is a postscript. And yet, and yet, uh, people like you and me are still fascinated uh, by them. And I get the feeling, I may be wrong, you may have a very different view, that people in Britain don't hate them. Well, I think they, they seem romantic figures. I don't think people realise the damage they did. It's sometimes difficult to do an audit of treachery, to, 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 to show the causation between particular uh, events. 
Um, but, you know, Burgess was a very charismatic figure. He was, uh, I mean, a drunk uh, for a large part of his life, but he was amusing. He was intelligent. He mixed with all sorts of people who took him seriously, like George Orwell and, uh, and others. Um, so there's, there was a hinterland there. Uh, and I think we're all interested in the psychology of, of betrayal. Uh, and so they are fascinating figures as characters and particularly good for a biographer. But also they still have a relevance to the contemporary world. We still have our tensions with the Soviet Union. We still have cover-ups going on. I've got, uh, news. Still... I've got news for you, Andrew. The Soviet Union is 30 years dead. Well, I think the intelligence services of, 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 of Russia are no different to the Russian oh, really? intelligence services they were. I for. suppose ours are no different either to what they were back then. Now, your book, uh, Stalin's uh, Englishman, is uh, an absolutely brilliant read. I commend it to everyone. Funnily enough, uh, an Englishman abroad, Bennett's story, was filmed in the city of Dundee when I still lived there. Indeed, I was the party boss there. And the city square was covered in snow. Uh, the Marx, uh, Engels and Lenin were hung from the Caird Hall uh, um, um, balustrade. Uh, the center of Dundee was transformed into Red Square Moscow, uh, just uh, in case I wasn't already enthralled enough uh, in this story. Uh, what's your next one, Andrew? Have you got something else coming out soon? Well, I've only just uh, delivered, uh, a, a published a book called Traitor King, The Scandalous Exile of the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, oh, yeah. which based on deep archival research, I think pretty much makes the case um, um, completely that the Duke of Windsor was a Nazi agent during the war uh, and that people were executed for far less than he did. It also looks at the emptiness of the Wallace and um, uh, Duke of Windsor relationship, that this was not a great love affair, but two pathetic people who were trapped together. I look forward to that very much indeed. Andrew Loney, it's always a great pleasure to talk with you. Thanks for joining me. Now, we've got this poll running. Who will be the next leader of the Conservative Party? The answer so far, A, Rishi Sunak, the current Chancellor of the Exchequer for overseas viewers and listeners. That means he's in charge of the money. He's the finance minister. B, Liz Truss. She's the Foreign Secretary, I know it's difficult to believe, but she is. And 29% favour her. And C, Michael Gove, 13%. Poor Michael. Uh, and uh, how is it on, that's on Twitter, on YouTube, Sunak, same as 57, Trust 18, quite a bit less, and Gove, 25, quite a bit more. So we Michaels got much more support on YouTube, uh, if he's watching, uh, switch to YouTube. Telegram, uh, Sunak, 62%, Trust, 17%, and Gove, 21%. So Telegram and YouTube favor Gove more than Twitter, which gives them only 13%. Now, you can, of course, vote on my Twitter feed. Have I got time for some social media? All right, I've got to get straight on. I mentioned at some length earlier uh, that today is Remembrance Sunday. Jeff Tibbs is a peace activist for the Peace Pledge Union. Now, many of you may not have heard of the Peace Pledge Union, though I've been aware of them uh, 
since my youth. Uh, their principal badge is that they wear white poppies and market white poppies rather than red ones. And we thought it would be useful to get the perspective of people who are avowedly pacifist against war, I think against all war, uh, on this day. And so I'm grateful uh, for Jeff's attendance this evening uh, on Remembrance Sunday. Jeff Tibbs, thanks very much for uh, joining us. I was with one of your colleagues just yesterday making uh, another television program. So I'm uh, seeing these white poppies quite regularly this weekend. Explain them first, if you would. So thanks for having me on. So the white poppy has three meanings. Uh, the first is remembrance for all victims of war. That includes uh, civilians uh, who make up the vast majority of victims of war. It includes people of other nationalities. And that including Nazi soldiers. Well, it's it includes people of all nationalities. So it includes all victims of war. That's in a spirit of remembrance. It doesn't mean honoring them. It doesn't mean celebrating them. It's important to recognize the human cost of war. And as I say, our main focus is on those who are systematically excluded from the mainstream, which would include civilians, uh, those who it suits the British government to forget, such as people dying of starvation currently in Yemen. Uh, the second meaning is uh, challenging militarism. That includes the militarization of remembrance itself, which is often uh, conducted with military uh, paraphernalia and processions and so on, and in a way that um, lends support to the institution of the armed forces. And the third meaning is building a culture of peace. Now, uh, your campaign, it's just, uh, you might say, a rose by any other name, it's a poppy, it's a white one rather than a red one, tends to provoke a lot of controversy, sometimes even hate, certainly malice. Why is that, do you think? I think it's often through misunderstanding, to be honest. I mean, a couple of years ago, there was an independent poll that we were we commissioned, uh, which showed that the vast majority of people actually are in favor of remembering civilians on Remembrance Sunday. They're in favor of remembering people of all nationalities. And in fact, many people, when you speak to them, tend to feel that the red poppy encompasses such people. Whereas in fact, the official uh, narrative, the official meaning of it uh, is quite different. The official meaning of the red poppy is to focus exclusively on British and allied military victims of war. And so that's what we want to change. That's what we want to broaden. And in fact, when you speak to people about it, I tend to find people are very supportive. So I think it's misunderstanding, really. And is your campaign growing or retracting? As I say, I've known of you for well over 50 years. Is it getting bigger? Are you selling more white poppies or fewer? Uh, more in general. I mean, a, a few years ago was the first time that more than 100,000 uh, were sold, uh, mainly around the UK, but also um, some other countries too. Um, this year, for example, we've seen a, a, quite a sharp rise in the number of outlets around the country, shops, cafes, community centres, union branches and so on, uh, selling white poppies. Uh, we've also seen more and more people using white poppies in ceremonies around the country. So, yeah, there's growth. It's obviously up and down and the pandemic uh, hit the white poppy campaign as it did a lot of other things. But, yeah. And what do you do with the money that you raise? 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So any profits raised from it? I mean, it's, I should say, firstly, it's not primarily a fundraising tool but any profits go towards the Peace Pledge Union's education, peace education work and campaigning against militarism uh, and against war. Um, it's primarily about the meaning, as I say, but we do, you know, we're, we're a not-for-profit organisation and any money is channeled back into our work uh, to try to make the world a more peaceful place. And are you against all war? Are you strictly, entirely pacifist? Would you have... Uh, stood up to uh, Hitler at the Channel ports, or would you have uh, downed tools, as it were? I mean, are you asking me personally, or the the Peace Pledge Union? I mean, well, it's 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 a it's a uh, we are against all war. We're against all militarism, whether that's militarism on the part of NATO, militarism on the part of Russia, or the US, or the UK. And to, to us, it's about opposing the causes of war, as well as war itself, when it arises. It's about opposing the system that leads to war, the, the uh, military industrial complex, the arms trade, the kind of ideology that lends support to war. Uh, that's, what, that's what being a pacifist means to me. You don't buy the uh, Thomas Aquinas uh, concept of the just war? No, certainly not. I mean, I think... Uh, War tends to result in cycles of violence. I mean, you can see that in Afghanistan today. You can see it around the world. It's something that, um, you know, war as we tend to encounter it tends to be um, waged by powerful states uh, that do the most damage, um, often against much weaker adversaries. And, you know, in, in this country, there's a lot to question, you know, an increasing military budget. Uh, a huge increase in the nuclear uh, weapons cap is, that's recently been introduced by Boris Johnson's government. Uh, the largest increase in military spending since the Korean War. These are the kinds of things that are the pressing issues that we address. Well, they're all uh, very noble uh, causes, but the, the, the concept of the just war justifies uh, standing up to Hitlerism. And if we had not stood up to it, those who are not pacifists, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now, would we? I mean, it's a, to me, I focus on remembrance. It's a question of whether we propagate a morally sanitized version of the past, whether we ignore certain chapters of the past in favor of teaching a kind of good versus evil narrative. I mean, you know, 
when when we talk about the white poppy, we try and shine a light on history and the horrors of war uh, in its fullness. You know, there's some things about the Second World War that are never talked about in this country. And I don't want to come on this program or any other and issue kind of nationalist soundbites about the Second World War, as we're often expected to at this time of year. So for well, me, there's it's no about... nationalist uh, soundbite from me because I'm the last person that could uh, reasonably be described as a nationalist. Uh, I do know that my grandfathers uh, put a gun in their hand and a tin hat on their heads to stop fascism. They killed fascists because if they had not, then Nazism, fascism, Hitlerism would have conquered this island and we literally would not be having this conversation. Neither of us would likely be alive. There's no way around that uh, moral point, is there? I mean, I don't at all mean to cast judgment on the people you're talking about who went to fight fascism, nor do I want to cast judgment on people who, in a desperate situation, uh, took up arms to combat colonialism. That's not the point of pacifism to me at all. I mean, you know, I'm only just over 30 years old and I can see the world in front of me has a whole load of problems associated with militarism. It's a system, as I say, that has as part of it, you know, the arms trade, the actions of the British government overseas. It's something, you know, I've grown up really under the shadow of the war on terror. This is, this is the reality that uh, the campaigning that we do addresses. It's not about historical hypotheticals for me. I mean, if, well, if there's you no, nothing to... hypothetical about the Second World War, I can tell you, or about the events in Liverpool today. However, Jeff, uh, you've played a, a good innings with a straight bat. Jeff Tibbs, peace activist for the Peace Pledge Union. Thanks for joining us. You know, and it's a very, thank you for, you know, I, I'm a big fan of your show, Gigi. Great, great debate, great. And I'm Scottish. I'm very passionate about what's happening there, you know. I had a great mom. She was Scottish, Mary McLeod. She taught me well. She taught me well at everything, including golf. I love Scotland and I love the Scottish food. It's great food. I said to Melania, you know, haggis. Look at that. What's more than more Scottish than that? Me. I am that haggis. She said, what, thin-skinned and full of crap? Now, just an update. Three people have been arrested by counter-terror police following a fatal car explosion outside a Liverpool hospital. The men are aged 29, 26 and 21, according to police, and were detained in the Kensington area of Liverpool before being arrested under the Terrorism Act in connection with the explosion outside the front door of the Women's Hospital in Liverpool. And I quote, detectives from counter-terrorism Police Northwest continue to keep an open mind about the cause of the explosion and are working closely with colleagues at Merseyside Police as the investigation continues at pace. Armed police were pictured outside a house in the city following the explosion. Uh, a later statement confirmed what I told you earlier, that the deceased was a passenger in the car, which was a taxi, and that the taxi driver was injured and remains in hospital in a stable condition. You don't need to be Sherlock Holmes uh, to work out uh, what the evil intention uh, was and why 
Three people have been arrested under the Terrorism Act. They have not yet been charged, so I can still speak about it with a certain circumspection. Uh, but uh, I knew, uh, candidly, as soon as I knew the time of the explosion, seconds before uh, the commemoration of Remembrance Sunday, when the whole country goes silent, for an explosion to take place at that exact moment, you didn't need to be Sherlock Holmes to work out what was happening. Who will be the next leader of the Conservative Party? Sunak is way in front on Twitter. He's up on 59% on YouTube, 55% on Telegram, 62%. The others are also rans, but of the others, Liz Truss, the Foreign Secretary, has at least a semi-respectable 29% on Twitter at least, but only 18 on YouTube and only 17 on Telegram. Just before my next guest, can I read a few social medias? Uh, on the poll, uh, Schopen, pardon me, Schopenhauer says, after Boris the buffoon's antics, it will probably be a sensible, safe pair of hands backed by the 1922 committee. In other words, Sunak. Personally, he says, or she says, I think trust would be a great move. And the Baker man says, personally, I think they need a total change. Get rid of the old sleazy guard. I'd go for Mark Harper. Who he? I can hear echoing across the country. Tories kill. The money has selected Sunak. Gove's private life is too much of a liability. Mm, matron. And Gammon King, MBE, says an actual conservative would be nice. And Chris Strange says it's got to be Liz. She's got a touch of Thatcher about her, and Tories like that in a woman. You mean the smack of firm governance? Gove has already shown he's untrustworthy, and Sunak is only popular because he splashed the cash during the pandemic. In April, when reality bites, he won't be that liked. Now I'm joined uh, from uh, the Washington, D.C. area with America's finest independent political commentator. That's right, it's Garland Nixon, and he joins me now. Garland, always a pleasure to see you. Um, I've got to ask this first question. Forgive me, uh, I, mean, I take no pleasure in it. it uh, it's not in any sense intended to hurt the United, people of the United States, but I read a story today that inside the White House, uh, there's a very steadily fast-growing feeling uh, that President Joe Biden is, and I quote, deteriorating fast. Uh, if that's true, and I'd like your view on whether it's true, uh, what kind of particular problems does that pose your country at a time when they're on a more or less war footing with both Russia and China? Well, particularly the problem it poses is that there is behind um, Joe Biden, there is a bit of a battle going on between several factions, uh, several neocon factions. You know, I've said many times and in America, we have a battle between the war hawks and the ultra hawks. And if Joe Biden, sadly, as, um, as, as much of a propensity as Joe Biden has towards militarism, uh, currently he falls into just the war hawks um, category. So that would be a, a 
a considerable crisis because the question would be who would come out ahead um, in the event that he was no longer able to to preside over the uh, the empire. Certainly, those who are looking at Kamala Harris feel that she's somewhat of a hollow shell and that she would not be really party to that um, to that b battle going on between the neocon factions, that she would likely simply follow the dictates of the winner. Uh, help us with the Constitution. Uh, at what point, if Joe Biden doesn't accept that he has to shuffle off the scene, uh, at what point does somebody act and and how do they act? And if Kamala Harris is the number two, if Joe Biden leaves the scene, who then becomes the number two? How is that person chosen? Well, we've got in America, the, it starts with the 25th Amendment, which is a constitutional amendment which allows the cabinet of the president, of the sitting president, to, um, if they come to the conclusion that the president is no longer able to perform his or her duties, they can then go to Congress. You know, there's an administrative procedure through which they can move with Congress to um, to, to force the person to vacate the, uh, the seat. Um, at that point, Kamala Harris would, of course, be the president, and she would be allowed to, let me change this. Theoretically, she would be allowed to select the um, her, her whoever her vice president would be. But in the same way, authorized if we're frank by about no one, this, just by fiat, no one would have to validate that. No, she could choose, she could in fact choose who her vice president was, but wow. I, th that's why I said theoretically because in the same way that um, many people here believe that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, who were both unpopular even in their own parties, were selected by the elite ruling class. Um, many feel that you know the discussion for this is, for the ruling class is someone like a Pete Buttigieg, and if you think it's a train wreck now, um, <laughs> that would be uh, you know the, the the bitter end of the party. I mean, he's so connected to the intelligence community that there would be no um, confidence whatsoever that we had an independent. Tell us more leadership. about him. Uh, not many of us on this side of the pond, at least, know anything uh, about him. He did run for the nomination. Uh, but he didn't, uh, he didn't come close in the end. But I do read that uh, he would probably be Kamala Harris's pick for VP. Yes. Well, the, a couple of things about him. He's uh, he was the mayor of a small town in Indiana, a town of about 100,000 people. Um, well, they consider it a city, but it was you know about 100,000 people. He was um, he kind of overnight became a star, and he was the kind of star that was pushed by the people in power because he was a top-down star. In that the news media, you know, all of the the Washington Post, the New York Times, all the powers that, that be declared him a star but he didn't have the commensurate support from the um, from the electorate. So he, he's a selected star. Um, he's uh, he's he's uh, gay and he's married. Um, he's currently the head of uh, transportation. And he really has been doing a Joe Biden in that he's been missing in action most of the time during some pretty significant trend, uh, crisis crises that are related to uh, to his his area of expertise. Uh, it ticks a lot of liberal boxes, that uh, team, uh, a black woman president and uh, a gay man as vice president. Is that what that's all about? 
Absolutely. It's about creating a Benetton ad, not a competent team of leaders. I mean, clearly that's where the Democratic Party is now. They're about putting the right, you know, making a nice picture and saying, look, we've checked all the boxes. And I think it's intentional because, again, if we get back to the battle going on behind the scenes within the within various factions of the elite ruling class, I don't think they want much more than a, um, a person there who looks the part so that they can enact their policies through them. They want a conduit it for power. And that is precisely what Pete Buttigieg and, um, and, and Kamala Harris would be. I think a phrase is born there, a Benetton ad, uh, rather than uh, a presidency. I'll be surprised if that one doesn't fly. It's what we call a zinger, Garland, and we've come to expect those from you. Uh, okay, so uh, the midterms take place uh, this coming uh, when? In the middle, uh, in May, is it? Uh, the, the, the midterms take a place just about a year. We're right about a year out. It's 2022, the midterm elections. And um, currently, the view is that the Democrats are going to get crushed for any number of reasons, of course, not the least of which being um, the um, the lack of confidence in the Biden administration to address uh, economic woes. Um, of course, his uh, stumbling and bumbling and not appearing to be really having control of the of the helm. Um, and uh, the, the, well, the circumstances as, as, have not worked out well. Garland, uh, he's not in control of what comes out of either end if, uh, if uh, the Prince Charles's wife uh, is to be believed because he loudly, uh, how shall I say, erupted out <laughs> of his backside in front of her, which is uh, something she's used to from the horses, but not usually from the President of the United States. So, I mean... I don't know if you saw Peter Sellers' last film, Being There, uh, where uh, Chance, the gardener, Chauncey Gardner, uh, uh, inadvertently stumbles into being the president of the United States. The more I look at Joe Biden, the more like the Peter Sellers character, Chance, the gardener, uh, he looks. So you, they can't be serious about him leading them into midterm elections, which currently look like a train wreck. Yeah, well, they and, and the problem that the our elite ruling class has is that they don't have another alternative. And, you know, again, with his health problems, with his issues, with his uh, mental competency, um, there's a question whether or not he will be able to hold up. He certainly won't be able to go on the stump. He certainly is unable to, you know, to do the things that a president normally would do to support his party leading into a difficult uh, midterm election. They can't they put um, Kamala Harris, um, Barack Obama, et cetera, the usual figures out in Virginia uh, for the Virginia race, and they lost anyway. They have no coattails. So the Democratic Party is in a lot of trouble. And subsequently, since they are the ruling uh, party right now, the United States is in a lot of trouble. It seems to me, therefore, and I got a whiff of it with the indictment of Bannon, uh, Steve Bannon, Donald Trump's former right-hand man, maybe current right-hand man, who knows? Uh, these things go up and down. Uh, the It seems to me the Democrats only hope is to criminalize and make impossible a second Donald Trump presidential run. Uh, but if they do that, social peace in the country will be very much endangered. That's how it looks to me. 
I think you're right. But even then, I think they are so weak. You know, they've got remember, there's a guy down in Florida named Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis is very popular amongst the um, amongst the um, the Republican base. So the Republicans actually have a few people that are popular enough amongst their base that they can get a good turnout from their base. Um, the Democrats don't have that right now. No one that they would be comfortable with. The people that they're the, the Democratic Party would more than likely support the ruling elite class of the party certainly would not accept. So the, the Republicans at least still have some faith in the party amongst uh, independents and amongst some of the, the, the potential candidates. The Democrats right now, um, they're in trouble because, as I said, here's their big problem. The people that could be competitive in the Democratic Party are not acceptable to the ruling elite because they're too populist. They're, they're, they, they, they wouldn't simply be puppets for the billionaires. But would Trump allow a surrogate like DeSantis to, as it were, appear in his place? Well, what I think is more likely, if Donald Trump is healthy, if he's ready to run, um, you are correct in that the intelligence community and the and the and the powers that be would make some attempt to try to stop him. I don't know what that they could do constitutionally. I don't see an option. And again, here's the other option that I would predict: a an easily winning, an easily an easy win for the um, Republicans would be a Trump DeSantis party. DeSantis is from Florida. Excuse me, um, uh, uh, ticket. DeSantis is from Florida, a very important state. He could deliver that state because he's very popular. And of course, Donald Trump being, you know, have, being up in years as is uh, Joe Biden, he would certainly give the appearance that he was ready to take the helm, unlike a Kamala Harris or a Pete Buttigieg. And how's the, the liberal media taking all of this? They're, uh, they're stuck, aren't they? they? They were the choir for Joe Biden, and yet they must gaze upon this current... Uh, situation with dismay. Yes. And after um, Afghanistan, it was a difficult time period because the, um, the the mainstream media is also, you know, the voice of the empire. So they were very angry that Joe Biden pulled out of Afghanistan. So they attacked him for a while. And now they're trying to recover, regain their feet and decide how to how to not so much support Joe Biden as to stop Donald Trump and to stop the Republicans from winning. And I think they've thrown in a towel. I think they understand 2022 is going uh, is not going to go in their direction. And uh, going into 2022, there are many economists who see the potential for um, a recession, for uh, bad economic times, which would then, you know, we're looking at, um, you know, uh, uh, si significant majorities in both houses for the Republicans. And might I add, investigations into Hunter Biden and other things that could be even more damaging for the Democrats and uh, Joe Biden. Good point. I'd forgotten about uh, Hunter Biden and his laptop and his business relations uh, in the Ukraine. Speaking of which, the United States administration uh, made a most peculiar announcement uh, uh, this last few days in which they warned the European uh, powers, the European Union, that Russia was preparing to invade Ukraine. Now, of course, Russia has no intention whatsoever of invading Ukraine. This is a perennial uh, uh, canard which is uh, trotted out. But it had two peculiarities. Why were they warning Europe? Did they imagine that the mighty armies of the Netherlands and Belgium, Italy and Greece are going to fight Russia? Uh, why would they warn the Europeans uh, of this? 
and secondly, as it will quickly be found to be entirely baseless, are they now so reckless that they'll throw out these kind of baseless accusations, even if time will show that they're entirely false? Um, well, in, in this instance, I don't think um, that they said that for the, that, the. I'll put it like this: I don't think that the this was uh, th this. Um, was for the Europeans. I think it was internal. I think it was to get this out into the news, to get this out into the media so that they could frighten the people of the U.S. and frighten the people of, of, of um, Europe and that they, that allows them to continue the things they're doing with military buildup, to the continue, the, continue the money laundering with um, feeding um, various um, very expensive weaponry systems into Ukraine. So yeah, I, I think if you read this as they really meant it or was it true or false, I think you missed the fact that this is internal and this is to continue to prime the American public for the absurd activities and, and of course, the European public, the, the absurd activities of NATO and the U.S. Uh, towards Russia. Garland Nixon, as always, fascinating to get your perspective. Thanks for joining us on the Thank mother you for me. Uh, of all talk shows. A former legend, Lizzie, I think, in Gloucester, is on the line. Go ahead, Lizzie. Hi, George. How are you? We don't hear from you much now. Go ahead. No, well, I haven't actually... I haven't rung up, and since you enabled um, the ex-Tory voters to bully myself and other women online, and when we, when we objected to that, you blocked us. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about, people. but I'm no, sure it's of little interest to the world. So well, tell, me, tell me what it is I you want to talk, talk about. The thing I want to talk to you about is the the fact that you uh, you you stated at the top of the show that it was um, most likely uh, dinghy refugees that had bombed Liverpool. Today. I said nothing of the kind. You, you did, really? Actually. I said and nothing of the kind. I Neither you nor you I. I said nothing. Stop! 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 I said nothing of the kind. Nothing of the kind. Now, if you want to carry on, carry on. But I said nothing of the kind. You need to listen to it again. I, I have listened to it two or three times because I was so bloody angry at the first one. I have thought I'd better listen tell to me that then. again. Tell me what I, I said. Tell me, uh, tell me I what I said. That you're after the, the Tory vote, the ex-Tory vote. Um, I appreciate How that. How dare you? How dare and you? Get I, this woman, get this woman off the line. I'll tell you what I am desperate about, madam. I am desperately angry that pregnant women, new mothers in a Liverpool hospital were almost torn to pieces by terrorist explosions. That's what I'm desperate about. I'm not interested in former Tory vote. Why don't you get this foolish paradigm out of your mind? Why don't you stop standing up for the women in the hospital in Liverpool? Even if it means that you have to question the fact that amongst us, in our country, there are people significant numbers of people who are 
bent upon murdering and maiming us. Your fetish, your infatuation with refugee politics is precisely the reason why you are an utterly marginal group of people and will always remain so. I'm very sad to say that this is the last time we'll be able to enjoy the company of James Giles, the smartest young man in England. But uh, let's enjoy it while we can. Uh, James going on to uh, bigger and better things. I know that uh, the people who watch us and listen to us will hear more of you in the future, but sadly not uh, here on the mother of all talk shows. So say, if you will, what you think are the big issues of this week in Britain. Well, the big issues this week, obviously, we've got the Tory sleaze scandal, which started off as Tory sleaze, has then merged into Labour sleaze. Keir Starmer really coming under the spotlight in recent days. And for... Charlie Faulkner, Lord Faulkner well, today. Lord Faulkner, He's another indeed. one working in the Virgin Islands. Absolutely. What is it about the Virgin Islands that first attracted all these politicians? Who knows? Maybe it's the tax haven status the islands have. I couldn't possibly comment. Well, for Keir Starmer, of course, it was Gibraltar. Uh, we've got the by-elections ongoing uh, in Britain. There's a number of them now. North Shropshire, Old Bexley. Uh, obviously, South End's a slightly different kettle of fish. Uh, the uh, summary of the COP26 conference. There's, there's really been a huge amount going on this week, in addition to the breaking news, which you've already covered extensively. Yes. About now, how does all of that impact on these by-elections and on the opinion polls in general? Because, as I said earlier in the show... Uh, in defiance of the laws of uh, physics or politics, if not physics, uh, Keir Starmer is currently ahead. Uh, how much worse can this get for Boris Johnson? And if it gets worse, what are the Tories going to do about it? Well, many of the viewers will remember, those in Britain at least, the major government sleaze days. And that really was the dying days of the major government. The Tories never really recovered in the 90s from those sleaze allegations. And there's a real risk that if Boris Johnson doesn't actually pluck up the courage and apologise for his handling of the Owen Paterson affair, if he doesn't pluck up the courage to tell Geoffrey Cox to either give up his work and apologise or go, that actually this could become very damaging for the Tories. The problem Labour have got, though, is that the Tories have a very effective spin machine and they are now turning the spotlight onto Labour, onto Keir Starmer, onto Lord Faulkner, because Keir Starmer, of course, has raked in over £100,000 since becoming an MP. Well, he would have raked in, in a lot things. more if Jeremy Corbyn had not refused him permission to take a bumper legal job with Mishkondorea. Well, quite. And that would have been uh, even worse for Labour had uh, Corbyn not have blocked it. The odd thing is, though, about that, you've got Starmer's team saying Corbyn had nothing to do with that decision whatsoever. Yet Corbyn has proof that it was him and his team that blocked the move to do yes. that. Yes, I was surprised that a Queen's counsel, mm. like, uh, and a privy councillor, uh, like uh, Keir Starmer, would, well, there's no other way of putting it, uh, would tell a lie. Uh, I thought officers of the court were not allowed to do that. Well, it's a very peculiar situation we find ourselves in. You often use the phrase two cheeks of the same arse and dare say that in this occasion you've got two cheeks of the same arse. You've got find the Tories really under the spotlight. And unusually, the Tory sympathetic press 
turning on Boris Johnson over these allegations. But Labour will too come under the spotlight. Now, whether that means that there could be upsets in places like Old Bexley in North Shropshire, we'll have to wait and see. The Liberal Democrats are bussing practically every activist that has a pulse to North Shropshire. They're out in every village every day, canvassing, running a really strong campaign there. They'll almost certainly finish second, but we could just find that it's Cheshman Amish and Mark II, this time not over planning, but over allegations of sleaze. Uh, whereas the challenge in uh, Bexley and Sidcup is, as it were, from the Tories' right, from the Reform Party and its leader, Richard Tice. Well, let's be quite clear. Richard Tice won't win the old Bexley and Sidcup by-election. I'll quite happily eat your hat or a replica of your hat <laughs> if Richard Tice were to win that by-election. That's how unlikely it is. But what we could see is the Tory vote splinter and let in Labour, un unlikely to be the Liberal Democrats, but probably Labour down the middle there if the Tory vote is sufficiently split. Richard Tice is probably one of the only party leaders, maybe the Greens too, that can stand up and say, we are relatively clean in this mess. Even the Liberal Democrats in North Shropshire. Ed Davey, the Liberal Democrat leader, was on the radio earlier this week justifying his £85,000 worth of consultancy a year. His justification is that he has a severely disabled child that requires around-the-clock care, and so his £85,000 a year consultancy goes to his son's care. All very well and good, but let us not forget that when Ed Davey was in the coalition government, he repeatedly and continuously voted to cut benefits for disabled people, to introduce universal credit, and set the NHS on its privatisation path that we're down now. Rather good point. Uh, now, uh, I've said how will it affect the by-elections, but how does it affecting the ranks of the Conservative Party? They are an absolutely ruthless party. I was there when, they, when matricide uh, occurred, when they politically assassinated their queen, uh, Margaret Thatcher. I well recall her hurrying through the corridors, tears uh, in her eyes as her former acolytes uh, basically dumped her uh, to save their own skin. If they could do that to Margaret Thatcher, they would certainly not hesitate to do it to Boris Johnson, would they? No, certainly not. And you've seen Rishi Sunak earlier this week on the airwaves, on the radio, almost rebuking Boris Johnson over this, him expressing personal sorrow over the Owen Paterson vote. And that's very unusual. That's the most uh, out, of out of line a Tory minister's been prepared to be. Now, Rishi Sunak obviously knows among the grassroots in the Tory party, he is the favoured choice at the moment. He won our poll out the park, really. Yeah, indeed. I mean, he's facing a growing challenge among the Tory grassroots from Liz Truss. Boris Johnson, former Foreign Secretary, now Prime Minister. Theresa May, former Home Secretary, was obviously Prime Minister before Boris Johnson. So Liz Truss is in one of those great offices of state. She's really building her base among the Tory grassroots. But those two are on manoeuvres. I think they see the writing could be on the wall for Boris, particularly if Labour grow their poll lead. It's only just one, two points, well within the margin of error at the moment. But if that continues to grow and Labour emerge from this relatively unscathed, then the Tories may well look to replace Boris Johnson. 
And what form would that take? Men in grey suits uh, or a motion of no confidence? Well, I mean, there are many that argue that Boris Johnson actually doesn't really enjoy being Prime Minister anyway. Dominic Cummings, on his recent online blog, uh, claimed that Boris Johnson asked him at the height of the COVID pandemic whether or not it would look acceptable for him to focus on writing his book about Shakespeare rather than actually dealing with the day-to-day -day governance of the country. He compared it to waking up daily and pulling a 747 down the runway by hand. So if that's to be believed, and take it with a pinch of salt, Dominic Cummings is... Rather bitter he, gentleman. He does have, uh, have motive, yes. Well, indeed, he uses his blog to just launch broadsides at the government. But uh, Boris Johnson, it's clear, you know, his heart isn't in it. He could earn a lot more not being Prime Minister. He's got a large number of children, the exact Who number knows? we still don't know. He claimed recently uh, in America, when he was in America, that it was six children. But whether that is the true number, we shall probably never know. But he's got, let's say, a fair amount of child support to be paying. Uh, he's been on the record as saying that his £150,000 PM salary isn't enough. So, you know, you may find that if a group of men in grey suits actually went to Boris and said, look, mate, you've done us well, you've got Brexit done, but, you know, do you maybe want to take a back seat now? I wouldn't be surprised. Now, just before you go, who should succeed to the British throne? Prince Charles, 27%. That's up to... Prince William, 39%, so well ahead of his father, but the Republic on 34%. Although on YouTube, it's 16% for Charles, 24% for William, 60% for a Republic. And on Telegram, it's 6% for Charles, 32% for William, and 62% for a Republic. How much of a crisis for the monarchy is it in Britain that rather a lot of people, including Peter Hitchens, a former monarchist, are now saying, we love the Queen, but we can't wear Prince Charles. Well, there are a large number of people who remember Charles's behaviour towards Diana. She was, of course, the people's princess and people held her very dearly. Many still have very fond memories of her. So there is a dislike of Camilla, perhaps even more so than Charles. Uh, I think if the public pressure was there, then the royal family may have to think twice about the future beyond the Queen. Obviously, wish uh, Her Majesty the best of health. It's unfortunate she wasn't able to get to the Cenotaph today for that remembrance service. The royal family bring in a fair amount of tourist trade, etc. At least that's the argument for a monarchy. The Queen is held in high regard, but after that, my personal preference would certainly be William. Uh, I think Charles uh, isn't seen by the British public as uh, someone uh, with quite the standing that uh, the Queen has, or indeed William and uh, Kate. Well, it's been marvellous, as I always say, having you. Uh, the very best of luck Thank in you. the next stage of your career. And as I say, I'm sure we'll be hearing more from you. Thank Let's you take uh, Derek in Plymouth. Go ahead, Derek. Uh, hello, George. Hi. Um, thanks for... Uh having me on the show. Welcome. I have to say um, I'm very nervous. I'm uh, like a reticent person at the best of times. Okay, just take so, your time. I promise not to eat you. Um, as, as concerning um, your, your chat with the chat about the, uh, the white poppies yeah. and um, what you were saying about the need to, to stand up against the Nazis. 
take your hand to... take your hand away from the mic on the phone, please. Um, yeah, that's, can it. You that's hear me better. Then? Yeah, go ahead, Derek. Yeah. Uh, did you hear what I was saying? Yeah. Go yeah. Um, well, I, I I do agree that that it came to such a stage that we did have to um, fight the Nazis, but I feel part of what the white poppy thing is saying, we need to look at um, not just the military side of remembrance, but uh, the, the, uh, the totality of the suffering that war causes and the reasons and, and the, the build-up to war and the possibilities of, of avoiding that and lessons could have been learned from the past I've just been watching quite recently, quite recent YouTube um, talks by a man called, I don't know if you've heard of him, an uh, economic historian called uh, Michael Hudson, who's just released a, an update of his book called Super Imperialism, that describes how uh, in the First World War, the Americans joined our side because they wanted to guarantee that the huge debts that we owed America we we'll paid back. Well, well uh, not only uh, have I heard of him, he was a guest on this show uh, not two weeks ago. I commend that interview to you. Sorry, Derek, uh, it's not a great line and the hour is late, but don't be shy. Call back anytime. Tom is in Saskatchewan in Canada. Let's hear from him. Tom, go ahead. G'day, George. How are you going today? All good, by the grace of God. Thank you. Yeah, good. I watched your. Uh, this is my first call, and I've worked. I've watched your commentaries on RT, and it's uh, it's very very interesting, uh, very very interesting talks that you give, and it's it's pretty pretty straight up. Uh, Thank you. What people need to hear. Thank you. Um, here here in Canada, our national news systems we can't get the straight as well as in the United States and in England too. I'm sure. But I got a question for you, and I just ask you. I'll just ask you the question and just leave it with you, George. Okay. It, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, with all the um, things that have been going on for the last 40 years, I've listened to uh, Max Blumenthal, Kim Iverson, uh, Cyrus Jensen, John Pilger, uh, Jimmy Dore, and yourself. And you, you can't get anything straight from national news media here in Canada or USA on China or Julian Assange. Julian Assange doesn't even make the radar here. So what would be the chances of uh, Max Blumenthal, Kim Iverson, Cyrus Jensen, John Pilger, Jimmy Dore, and yourself actually um, uh, addressing the United Nations someday to give the people of the world and the United Nations a factual lesson on what's been going on for the last uh, 20 to 30 to 40 years? Well, look, uh, uh, Tom, I'll, I'll pause only to pick up my toothbrush and I'd be on my way to New York. But... I very much doubt whether the powers that be in the United Nations would hear us. But it's an interesting thought, and we'll certainly explore it. I've got to clear the lines because there's a legend, Norma, in Bristol, on the line. Go ahead, Norma. Hello, George. Hi. Um, hi. I did have three points, but I don't know if I've got time. Yeah, you do. You do. Go ahead. You've got five minutes, nearly four minutes. Sorry. Okay. Um, first of all, the comment was... You know Guy Burgess, when he was gay, yep. how did he get on in Russia? Because I understood homosexuality is illegal there. 
No, it's it's not remotely uh, illegal. In fact, there's a a gay bar. uh, When uh, he was there, when he... Yeah, uh, it might have been illegal then, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know precisely, but being illegal doesn't mean there aren't any gay people. So uh, as far as I know, uh, Guy Burgess did not go short, if you know what I mean. (laughs) Well, he got on with it. Okay. The other thing is Jeff Tibbs with the Peace Pledge Union. Yes. Um, I agree with a lot of he said, but I still think it's a pity that he didn't answer your question about World War II and fascism. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, Sarah Sultana, the MP for Coventry, um, today she laid a wreath in memory of all those who lost their lives in the war for a more peaceful world. And... The wreath had red and white poppies in it, mm. which I thought was very nice. You think that's a, a useful compromise, really? Well, I do, really, because mm. it's... It, it, yes, I do, I do. I, I, I see that Keir Starmer's trying to... Uh, or Keir Starmer's supporters, to be more accurate, are trying to get rid of Zara Sultana. What do you think of that? Oh, I like her. I think she's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And she's gone through an awful lot of trauma and some very nasty things have happened to her. And I'm a great supporter of her. Um, but, but let me say, um, George, James, I have enjoyed your contributions. I think you've, uh, well, I really loved it. And I wish you very well for the future in what you do. That's very kind of you. Thank you very much indeed, Norman. Always a pleasure to hear from you on a Sunday evening. Yeah, well, I don't know about that, but I mean, well, I like... Oh, it is. Uh, the, yeah. whole, the whole audience waits for a call from you, Norma. We feel something might be wrong if we don't hear from you. Uh, how is your health, your husband's health? Oh, he's, he's not very well, really. Um, but we, we're not doing too badly. I actually... Um, my cop-out, like I've told you before, is my little nest, because... Um, up here, I can do my accounts on the computer, look at the different things. And today, I've got 400, which to me, is followers, is quite good, because i got my 400. 400 on Twitter? Yes. Fagash flow. Fagash <laughs> flow. We've got to make that 400, 4,000 before we're finished. Uh, Norma, thanks uh, very much for that call. Uh, James... Uh, People are going to miss you. You've been very uh, popular. Um, I know that you cannot, because of the terms of your new position, uh, come back uh, on the radio. What will you miss most? Um, I'll miss, I think, discussing the current affairs of the week with your good self. Uh, You're a fountain of knowledge on pretty much everything, actually. Um, And that's reflected in the uh, audience numbers and the number of people that ring in every week. And so, uh, although I won't be uh, in front of the camera, it's uh, not a a true farewell. I'll still be behind the scenes, of course, supporting as I can. But uh, it's been a real pleasure. So thank you very much indeed for having me. The pleasure was ours and we all gained uh, a great deal from your presence here. So, uh, Prince Charles, I'm afraid your bottom is out the window. Uh, There's almost... Uh, no support. There, there's just over a quarter want you to succeed uh, the Queen. Uh, Prince William is ahead, but he's only uh, about 4% ahead of a republic. I think this issue, uh, when Prince Charles becomes king, as he must immediately, will quickly move into being a sharp and important 
political controversy. The demand for a referendum on changing our system will quickly grow. And if the royals had any sense, then Charles would abdicate pretty damn quick and put William in his place. It's been marvellous for me. If it was for you, come back next week. Bertie Ault, rest in peace. The podcast had another incredible week with a rise of 14% in total downloads. That's on top of last week's 10% increase, making us not only one of the fastest growing political programs on screens and on radio, but now in podcasts too. We're now one of the top political podcasts, not just in the UK, but also in Switzerland, Japan, Germany, Thailand, Taiwan, and believe it or not, the UAE. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts and remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And why not leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts? If you're a Spotify user, please follow us and share with your friends so more people can enjoy most. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.